0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today.
1: Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door.
0: I'm Margaret Brennan and this week on Face the Nation, new signs of spring strain on the economy and Washington politicians prepare for the annual surge of migrants at the border. An 11th hour rescue is underway in an effort to save First Republic Bank as the Fed takes partial responsibility for the March collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. We'll talk with California Congressman Ro Khanna. Former Trump administration economic advisor Gary Cohn will also be here. Then...
4: In Texas 23, not only are we the epicenter of this border crisis, it feels as if it is hell for us.
0: Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez weighs in on the Biden administration's new plans to stem an expected border surge and what his party is proposing as those pandemic border restrictions, known as Title 42, will soon be lifted. And as the state-by-state march to solidify abortion laws continues, South Carolina Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace will join us. She's warning her party to find a middle ground on abortion access. Finally, the annual White House Correspondents Dinner honors Americans wrongfully detained overseas. The power of the press in a democracy.
3: Free press is a pillar, maybe the pillar, a free society, not the enemy.
0: And of course, some self-deprecating humor, Washington style.
3: After all, I believe in the First Amendment, not just because my good friend, Jimmy Madison, wrote it.
0: (laughs) It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning, and welcome to Face the Nation. As we look to a new month, we're keeping a close eye on the economy, which continues to be the number one issue of concern for Americans. Last week's news that economic growth slowed more than expected in the first quarter of the year will almost certainly factor into the Federal Reserve's decision-making this week, as we prepare for yet another interest rate hike to try to curb inflation. Complicating the Fed's dilemma is the political battle on raising the debt ceiling, fallout from the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and the looming prospect of a third government bank rescue, this time for California based First Republic. We begin with Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna, whose district was home to SVB. Good morning to you. Good morning. Um, Last time you were here, there were urgent efforts underway to save a bank. Today, again, urgent efforts, this time First Republic. We are hearing it could be seized by the FDIC, but there are also efforts to find a buyer to absorb it. What are you hearing?
5: This is what a modern bank run looks like. Let me tell you what companies in my district are saying. They're saying that payroll companies are telling them, move your deposits out of First Republic. You're not going to be able to have access to the accounts. That's why I think it is so important that we guarantee all bank depositors. I had said this last time I was on. Mm-hmm. There's $8 trillion, Margaret, in uninsured deposits in these banks. $10 trillion is insured. Until we guarantee them and we can charge a fee, we run the risk we that use- they're—
0: Congress.
5: Well, the Congress. Yeah, Congress. I've been working with Senator Rubio on this on a proposal to say, look, pay a fee and have some guarantee on these deposits, because otherwise, what's going to happen? Regional banks, they're going to be insecure or people are going to be concerned and they're going to start to consolidate into the top banks. And you have a lot of these payroll companies telling these companies to move to the the, the bank. So, I believe the FDIC is doing fine and well now, but we've got to prevent this from happening again. And the best way to do it is to guarantee these deposits.
0: Well, in the meantime, what you're talking about takes takes a long time. We're talking immediate sense here for First Republic. And some progressive Democrats have objected to the idea that some of the big banks who can afford to buy a little ones, some of the systemically important ones, um, that they should be prevented from stepping in to buy up First Republic. Is that where you fall?
5: No, I think that the FDIC needs to look at the lowest cost uh, alternative. That's their mandate. And right now they may need to work with banks and private capital to save uh, First Republic. I mean, that is the state we're in. But we can move quickly. Look, in the CARES Act, we actually said that all deposits were guaranteed for transaction accounts. Mm -hmm. I think if we do something like that quickly, we prevent this going again. We also need reform. I mean, look at what has happened, Margaret. Every time the economy heats up, we somehow say deregulate, deregulate. And it never works out. Mm -hmm. In 2018, the deregulation basically sent a signal to the Fed to stop the oversight on these banks.
0: Well, there there was a lot in that report (laughs) that I want to get into that just came out. But first off, one of the things blamed was poor management. Gregory Becker, who you knew, the former CEO of SVB, he had donated to your campaign as well. Um, When he was at the helm, Did you think at the time it was a problem that he was also on the board of the chief regulator there, the San Francisco Fed?
5: I did not know at the time, uh, but I do think now that that should not be allowed. I mean, no, I didn't have a sense back then that Silicon Valley Bank was going to have a challenge. Obviously, there was mismanagement. One reform we should have is that bank executives should not be on the board of the Fed, regional Fed, that's overseeing them. And I think that's a lesson. I also think there needs to be a clawback of his a bonus. Uh, there needs to be a clawback of executive compensation and far tougher rules on bank executives who have failed banks.
0: And yet the momentum doesn't seem to be there in Congress, either from the Democratic leader in the Senate or uh, in the Republican-led House. Why?
5: Well, there should be momentum for three things. One, the clawbacks on these executives. That could be bipartisan to for greater oversight and the rules uh, on these banks. I mean, we basically told these banks not to regulate, but the big place, and I'm working on a bipartisan basis, protect the regional banks. That's gonna help regional community banks the most in mainstream America. That's the biggest risk to the economy. Look, you have, Margaret, you have 5% interest rate. People are moving out into money market funds. Mm -hmm. They're moving out of banks. If we don't have a guarantee, we run a real risk across this country.
0: On this though, In terms of regulation, there were regulations in place. There were 31 supervisory findings, warnings from regulators about SVB when it failed. There were warnings in August, there were warnings in February. Doesn't that suggest it wasn't lack of regulation, but regulators not acting?
5: Well, what was both They're I mean,
0: raising flags and not doing anything
5: when Congress passed deregulation? There's not a straight line between that and what happened, but it certainly sends a signal to the Fed that maybe the Congress doesn't care as much. And I think there was lax oversight. Look, they noticed that there was risk there, but they didn't do the right liquidity or stress test. I mean, they didn't do a test to see what happens in a high inflation environment when Chair Powell has been saying for over a year he's going to raise rates. So you have
0: you have confidence in Chair Powell and Mary Daly at the San Francisco Fed?
5: I don't think you can blame Chair Powell. I've disagreed. I don't think you can blame him for this. I do think we need to know what are the concrete reforms. Let's stop having bank executives Mm -hmm. on these boards. Let's make sure that you have better liquidity tests and stress tests. Let's have the regulations we repealed in 2018 back there and have some statement on guaranteeing bank deposits so I don't have to come here every every (laughs) few weeks.
0: With another crisis. (laughs) Let me ask you about a looming one what to do about the debt ceiling. Um, The Fed is predicting a mild recession is ahead of us. The president has overseen the highest inflation that we have seen in decades in this country. Whether he calls it or not, he's overseeing it. You have all these looming issues, and now you have the standoff over the debt ceiling. It is not a sustainable position for the White House to say they're not going to negotiate with Republicans, is it?
5: Well, here's what's sustainable. The Republicans should do what I did under Donald Trump, and that's pay your bills. It's patriotic to pay your bills. Look, if you're a family, you have credit card debt. It sounds like you're
0: agreeing it's not a sustainable position.
5: Well, I I think we should pay the bills and then negotiate. And we should negotiate on deficit reduction. The last person to leave a surplus was Bill Clinton. I'll tell you how we lower the the debt. Let's repeal the Trump tax cuts. Let's repeal some of the Bush tax cuts for the very wealthy. Let's not have all these overseas wars. I mean, the the Democrats have a plan, and let's raise taxes on the top wealthy. But before we get there, we pay our bills. If you're a family, you have a credit card debt, who says let's not pay the bill?
0: But the president was saying, Kevin McCarthy passed something, or or at least put out a plan, and I'll talk to you. Now he's passed something, and the president says he still will not engage with him. I understand the back and forth, but the political cost and the economic one is very real here, and it will stick to the president.
5: Well, the president's saying he's not going to be hostage in having veterans' cuts on health care, in having cuts on K through 12 education, in having cuts on food stamps, in having cuts on manufacturing to just pay our bills. He's saying Mm -hmm. we can discuss that. can negotiate, but first pay your bills. And I think the I think Senator McConnell understands this. And I think the president will sit down with Senator McConnell. He knows that we can't default. <laughs> You
0: think that's the back channel that's going to figure this out?
5: That's why I said. Or Kevin McCarthy's got to come without 22 percent cuts on veterans benefits.
0: Well, we we will see. And uh, I do hope to have you on again when there's not a looming crisis, (laughs) Congressman. uh, Last week, two heavily Republican states, Nebraska and South Carolina, failed to pass near total abortion bans. South Carolina Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace joins us now. And it's good to have you here in person. You're often joining us remote.
6: Good morning, and thank you for having me.
0: So I want to get to a lot of what we just talked about there with the debt ceiling, but let's start off on abortion. Um, You've been talking about this being a a very moral issue, but also a political one that will impact voters in 2024. Nikki Haley, uh, the former ambassador, former governor of your state, said no Republican president will have the ability to ban abortion nationwide, and she believes there is a federal role on abortion. But she didn't say specifically what it is that she believes no limits
6: exactly no exceptions does she need to well i think any presidential candidate anyone running for office at the federal level including members of congress incumbents and people that are running to flip seats in 24 need to have a position need to articulate that position what i've been trying to do since roe was overturned is show a road map i represent a swing district in south carolina but show a roadmap map for winning states that are very purple or districts that are purple and articulating where we stand on the message. And we have to show, and I'm pro-life, but I'm a conservative who reaches across the aisle and works with the other side. I work with Ro Khanna, great to see him this morning on your program. I work with Democrats all the time on issues where we can agree on. And there's so much when it comes to protecting life and protecting women that we can agree on in terms of gestational limits. That's something that can happen at the state and the federal level. And I I talk to and listen to my constituents all the time. Mm -hmm. And I read a a letter from a woman who's no longer Republican. She's an independent voter now. She's pro-choice. And her gestational limits are 14 weeks. Well, I'm a pro-life legislature. Mine are 15 to 20 weeks. We want to make sure there are exceptions. So there's so much, I think, in how we talk about the issue. But we have to, as Republicans, show compassion towards women And life. I mean, you can do both and win. I did it overwhelmingly in November when we won by 14 points, overwhelmingly in a swing district.
0: And just for clarity, the majority of abortions are performed in that window of 15 weeks. Um, Right. So former President Trump has taken criticism from Republicans, though, for, for not specifying a position either, has just said it's up to the states. Um, both of South Carolina's senators have have picked that window, 15 weeks, 20 weeks. Tim Scott's running for president, mm-hmm. potentially here. He said he'd mm-hmm. sign a 20-week limit. Is he closer to what the Republicans need to be doing than Nikki Haley
6: is? Well, I think 15 to 20 weeks is, is the sweet spot here because the Democrats often are at 24 weeks and that's too far for a lot of people. No one wants zero. No one wants zero but weeks. But you yeah. want
0: this, to be clear, at the federal level. You want a law, not
6: it, kicking it It back can be. State. I mean, I think there's a role for the state government and for the federal government. If it's gestational limits, certainly we can find some agreement. That's why I say 15 to 20 weeks. That's something even pro-life groups like Susan B. Anthony's list, although they're against it now, two years ago, they were for 20 weeks with exceptions. They've just moved the goalposts. But mm-hmm. for years, uh, Republicans have been for 15 to 20-week bans with exceptions, including both my senators from South Carolina, at the federal level, and I—I I, I think most eighty percent of America would agree with that. But they want us to protect women and girls who are victims of rape, victims of incest, women whose lives are at risk. We also need to make sure that we're make that that birth control, that women have access to birth control, particularly yeah. in rural areas. In South Carolina, we have 14 counties in our state that don't have a single OBGYN doctor. And then what do we do with the babies who were born who are unwanted? What about our foster care system, adoption care, mm-hmm. uh, birth control? There's so many things that we can work on to show that we're pro-women. Yeah. Rape kits. We have over 100,000 rape kits in this country that have yet to be processed. We can do both. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. Well, you
0: have said um, Republicans need to have a woman on the ticket. Yep. Nikki Haley endorsed you. Are you
6: ready to endorse her? Well, we're gonna see how the race shapes up that not everybody is in. I'm watching very carefully. I love Nikki Haley. I've not been uh, quiet about that. She was the only person to endorse me in my election last year. And I do wanna see a woman on the ticket, but I also wanna see who jumps in. I wanna get everybody a shot, but I am cheering her on. She's a constituent and I love what she's doing. I love that she gave a speech last week on women's issues. That's very important. Women are watching.
0: But you want her to go farther and be more specific.
6: I would love to see her move on.
0: So, can a Republican um, candidate who supports or signs into law, as Governor DeSantis did, uh, a six week limit to abortion? In the dead of night, by the way.
6: um,
0: Can he succeed in running for the presidency? I mean, is this really going to be something that, and people who are in Republican districts, have to
6: make this calculus. You say you're in a, a purple one. Mm-hmm. So you have to it's compromise. A, well, it's the number two issue in my district. Number one's inflation, the debt is an important issue. Number two is abortion and finding a middle ground. Signing a six-week ban that puts women who are victims of rape and girls who are victims of incest, incest in a hard spot isn't the way to change hearts and minds. It's not mm-hmm. compassionate. The requirements he has for rape victims are too much, not something that I support as a non-starter. I am a victim of rape. I was raped by a classmate at the age of 16. I am very wary, and the devil's always in the details. But we've got to show more care and concern and compassion for women who've been raped. I don't like that this bill was signed in the dead of night, and it puts them in a very difficult position for a general election, in my opinion, which is why I have been so vocal on this issue. I would like us to win. I would not only like us to win the electoral college, I want us to win the popular vote. And if we can show the middle ground, which shouldn't be controversial birth control, shouldn't be controversial. It, it keeps yeah. the number of abortions down if women have access to birth control. It shouldn't be controversial.
0: Well, it's interesting because yeah. some candidates also, like Mike Pence, have said he would sign a 15-week limit, but he ultimately wants to get to a ban. So um, there's some, some nuance in there, too, in some of these positions. Mm-hmm. But I want to ask you about debt ceiling. You opposed and then voted for mm-hmm. Speaker McCarthy's bill that we were just discussing with Congressman Connor here to lift the debt ceiling in exchange for trillions of cuts. The bill's dead on arrival in the Senate. Um, White House says they're not ready to negotiate. Can you actually be confident that we will avoid getting close to default, even if we don't get over that cliff?
6: It's very dangerous the longer this turns It is, and we don't want to play chicken with the economy. And when I sat down with Kevin McCarthy, the speaker, on Wednesday, we talked about us leading a balanced budget amendment. I believe we need to do that. As you mentioned, as Roe mentioned earlier, the last time we balanced the budget was under Bill Clinton. Republicans in 94 put together a plan to balance the budget in 10 years. They did it in 98, four years later, with a Democrat president mm-hmm. and a Republican majority. It is not out of out of the thinking that we can do this together, a Democrat president, Republicans in charge. We did it again. We had cut cap and balance in 2010 with Obama as president. Are there red so,
0: lines here for you though?
6: Well, certainly, the fear tactic of, of default is a red line. That is not going to happen. We get 11 times the revenue that we need to pay the interest on the debt. The president can also prioritize spending. We don't, no one wants to cut veterans' benefits or social security or food stamps. That's not what this is about. But we have $31 trillion in debt that was started by both sides. Under President Trump, $8 trillion added to the debt. Under President Biden, $4 trillion. That's $12 trillion in six years. The president needs to come to the table take a look at what we have offered, and start negotiating. This is a serious problem. And as Roe mentioned earlier, families are living paycheck to paycheck. They have to balance their checkbooks every week. So too should the federal government. Our tax revenues last year were $4.7 Yet we're spending over $6 trillion every single year.
0: Well, we um, are not going to abandon this issue. We know it's going to be looming for some time. Thank you, both of you, for joining us. Face the Nation will be back in a minute. Stay with us.
2: Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's com slash Wondery.
0: We turn now to immigration and the ongoing effort to secure America's southern border. We're joined by Texas Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez. He's at our affiliate in San Antonio, Ken's Five. Thank you for joining us this morning.
4: Um, uh, Uh, Thank you for having me, Margaret.
0: (laughs) I don't have to tell you this date of May 11th, but for our viewers, that's when this health emergency restriction known as Title 42 will expire. Homeland Security is looking at 10,000 people per day potentially crossing the border. Do the agents you represent have what they need to deal with the surge?
4: They do not, Margaret. And this is honestly the fourth time that we've seen this Title 42 is going to end. And every time we come to this uh, situation, before the crisis is this uptick in illegal immigration. And we're seeing that now, whether it's Brownsville, whether it's uh, Eagle Pass, or whether it's El Paso. Now it's all three of those areas. And so the numbers are getting worse. The agents are beyond an exhausting point. And it's not just at the border. Now what you're seeing is places 100, 150 miles from the border are just as overwhelmed as if they were on the Rio Grande themselves.
0: Well, you are um, set to vote in the House on May 11th on a border bill. Um, You're part of the Congressional Hispanic Conference, which had opposed the Republican bills on the grounds that you needed provisions in it to help legal migrants in the asylum process. I know you are now on board, dropped your opposition. What changed for you? And is there anything in here that can get through a Democratic-controlled Senate?
4: Yeah, Margaret, it's an exciting time for the Congressional Hispanic Conference, which I'm the co-chair with Mario Diaz-Ballard. We have got 18 different members. It's the first time we've set a marker down and said our voices will be heard. Uh, one of the, I, I've been very public. I've essentially negotiated both in public and in private. One of the things that I in particular asked for is to not curb legal immigration, not hamper those that are legally doing the things that they need to do to come over. And a lot of that was stripped away in the judiciary part of it which was half of the package. The Homeland Security package, which I sit on that, that committee, I asked for some specific things. One was ensuring that we hold cartels accountable. You want to get to the root of the cause, they're the issue. So we, we go down this path of labeling cartels as terrorists. Another is giving resources to the people what that are that doing do? the work. We added $110 mil- yeah, 110 million for deputy sheriffs and uh, and local law enforcement officers. I did a ride along with the Medina County Sheriff's Office on Monday. Once again, this is 120 miles from the border. Yeah. Their, their police cruisers are getting are getting trashed and and other things. And the last piece is we got to give a pay raise to the Border Patrol agents. They okay. got a $9,000 bonus in this aspect of it, but we got to go further.
0: Okay. Well, on that uh, House bill you just voted for to lift the debt ceiling in exchange for cuts. Um, the White House argues it would mean cutting funding for Customs and Border Protection. Do you have any guarantees from Republican leadership that in a future deal, there won't be cuts to the agency you represent because you just signed a bill that would do that?
4: Look, I was on the fence. Uh, It was 215 to 215 when I ended up voting in favor of uh, of the debt ceiling. So I have some very deep concerns with with the direction we're going universal cuts don't uh, don't always solve the, the issue in the same breath just throwing money at a problem doesn't solve the issue. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to go, where is the money going? How does DHS, instead of getting a a blank check, how do we give them money to the things that are going to help secure the border? Like uh, repatriation flights. These are flights where people that do not qualify for asylum, they don't get flown to New York or D.C. or, or Chicago. They get flown back to their country of origin. That is how you solve the border crisis. Other things, like hiring Border Patrol agents, but you can't just give DHS A blank check and have them go spend it on all these things that is only encourages illegal immigration.
0: I have more about uh, about this to get into with you, but I have to take a quick commercial break. So please stay with us, Congressman, and we'll be back with all of you and a lot more Face the Nation in a moment.
2: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car.
0: If you miss an episode of Face the Nation, you can listen to our podcast, find us on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation, including more with Congressman Gonzalez and former head of the National Economic Council in the Trump administration, Gary Cohn, plus a conversation with parents about kids and the impact gun violence is having in their lives. Stay with us. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We return to our conversation with Texas Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez, who joins us from San Antonio this morning. Congressman, I want to pick back up on border security. Um, Migrant families after May 11th, um, if they cross into the U.S. illegally, will not be detained by the Biden administration. The Trump and Obama administrations did detain families. Should families be detained?
4: There should be repercussions for people that enter the country illegally. And this is where the Biden administration is getting wrong. First off, they're doing more. And I appreciate the fact that they're trying different things. Uh, It's taken them a while, but I appreciate that. This is what they're getting wrong. They're putting all their time and effort into illegal immigration, finding ways to increase capacity, finding ways where people can come over illegally uh, quicker. Uh, The reality is nine out of 10 people that come over into our country illegally do not qualify for asylum. So stop sending them down that route when you know they're not going to qualify for asylum. I am of the mindset we need to encourage those to come over legally. You would have to change the asylum laws. Once again, I'm you do, have to, you do have to change the asylum laws, and it's, it's something that the president should work with Congress on. You haven't heard the president say one thing about immigration other than just blame others. Congress has a role to play. I think that uh, us passing this uh, bill in, in the House on security is important. The next step is immigration reform. I am committed yeah. to doing that. You haven't seen anyone even try immigration reform in the past decade. I think it's a long time that we do something. In my yeah. opinion, that starts with protecting those that are doing it legally through work visas.
0: So just to be clear, do you think it's humane to keep kids in detention centers with their parents?
4: I think there needs to be a process where folks have their uh, asylum claim heard in days, not years. And if they yeah. qualify for asylum, welcome to the United States. And if they don't, you have to send them back to their country of origin. What what we can't do is what we're having now. Right now, we have tens of thousands of children that are just being released into this country. What is happening to these children? Regardless of their legal uh, re- legal identity, I mean, what is happening to this children, these children? So we have well, to enforce the laws that are on the books, and we have to encourage those to come over legally yep. and make it easier for folks to, to obtain work visas.
0: Okay. Well, Health and Human Services takes those kids um, custody of them, but, but point taken on um, needing to watch what happens next. Uh, Congressman, thank you very much for your time today. We want to turn now to Gary Cohn, who is the vice chairman of IBM, former Goldman Sachs president and uh, former Trump administration top economic advisor. Good morning to you. Lots of titles, Gary. Lots of experience. That's why we like having you here. Um, I want to ask you about what's happening with First Republic. Um, It's been under pressure. We know they've been looking for a buyer. Mm -hmm. Uh, The FDIC, the government, is looking to arrange moving it into government control and then maybe selling it. What are you hearing about how this would roll out?
7: Margaret, thanks for having me. I I think you're portraying the situation as we find ourselves again on a weekend. Um, As we closed Business Friday, the FDIC was in a process of looking for acquirers or bidders for the assets. Over the course of the weekend, I think the FDIC has asked potentially three banks for their final bids for the entire bank. The FDIC would prefer to sell the bank in its entirety than the pieces. Mm -hmm. What will most likely happen is the FDIC will seize control and then simultaneously resell the asset to the successful bidder. I think that will happen sometime later this afternoon before the markets open um, in Asia this evening.
0: And this will be a faster process than what happened with SVB.
7: It will be. It will be a much faster process. Now, we've been going down this process for the last two weeks or so as First Republic continues to be under pressure and continues to lose deposits. Unfortunately, First Republic reported this week that they had a massive outflow of deposits over the last quarter.
0: So if um, First Republic is sold, then the acquirer would take on the deposits. So. Um, what do you think about the conversation we had earlier with Congressman Khanna about whether Congress needs to do something here? Because it seems like we're just going into emergency yeah. mode now for three banks. Yep. Does there need to be a, a broader change to the regulatory system and to the laws? Well,
7: it's, a, it's an interesting question. So, look, I, I don't agree with Congressman Kohana that we want unlimited FDIC insurance. I think that, to me, is a bit of a race to the bottom.
0: You had picked like two, two million, five million, ten million. Yeah,
7: I mean, there's got to be some limit. At some point, you have to limit because you don't want a total race to the bottom, where you know the, the weakest bank with the weakest balance sheet in the world can offer you the highest rate of return on your deposits. And therefore, you take your deposits there because guess what? They're insured by the federal government. That's not what we want to see. We want to see some type of discipline in the system. When you talk about more and more regulation, I smiled because if you look at the report that came out that you referenced with, with uh, Rokohana as well, you know one of the findings in the report is that the regulators did not do a very good job enforcing the existing rules. Mm-hmm. So if you can't enforce the rules you already have on the books, and why it's hard to enforce the rules because there are so many rules, do you want to create more and more rules when you can't enforce the ones you already have? Part of me feels like we need to get a simpler, mo- more coherent set of rules so the bank regulators can actually enforce them, and they know what the important rules are.
0: But the bank regulators here are at the Fed. That's what we're talking about.
7: They're at the Fed and at the states. Remember, we have state-regulated banks and federally regulated
0: banks. Well, then, that's a big conversation for California since they just had two banks uh, have some big problems. But Fed Chairman Powell is going to face questions from the press midweek. Yes. Um, He gives a press conference around the decision on interest rates that he is expected to be making. Um, Do you think these banking problems are going to interfere with his plan?
7: I don't think these problems are going to interfere with his plans. I actually think they're helpful to his plans because so, they're slowing the economy. Exactly, what, what the what the, the chair has been trying to do is slow the economy down. He's been trying to tamp down inflation. Inflation is too many goods chasing too few products, and part of the 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 the, the, the chasing has been the easy availability of credit. Now that we've seen deposits lose the system, leave the system, and we've seen banks in tighter financial position, they are not offering loans as easily as they were before, and the loans have become more expensive. So people are borrowing less money. They have less access to credit. So their ability to purchase is going down. Purchasing power is waning in the United States, which is exactly what the chairman's been trying to do by raising interest rates. So he's, in, in essence, getting enormous amount of help out of this banking crisis. Not what he wanted to see happen in any way, shape, or form, but the unintended consequence is very helpful to slowing down the economy and tamping down inflation.
0: So does it up the odds of a recession being more than mild? Uh, It
7: probably ups the odds, yes. I mean, it definitely ups the odds. It takes control out of the Fed. The Fed is no longer in, in total control of slowing down the economy. They've now got the banking industry playing along with them. But as we've seen in the economic data recently, the consumer in the United States still is in relatively good shape, They are starting to run out of savings. The money that they got during COVID, we we put an enormous amount of stimulus into consumers. Bank accounts. Um, and Both that,
0: administrations? Both,
7: both administrations. Every every administration put an uh, enormous amount of stimulus in the bank account. We see from the savings data that's starting to, to wear down and starting to, to run off. So as that runs off further and further, the economy would become more credit-dependent to keep driving. So I think we will see a slowdown. And I still think we're in a relatively decent shape. We may have a recession, but I still think we could muddle through the bottom here without a, a, a real deep recession.
0: Um, The chair of the House Financial Services Committee, uh, Congressman McHenry, called the Fed's report a self-serving justification of Democrats' long-held priorities. Um, He may be venting. It doesn't look like Congress is doing anything uh, to change regulation or laws related to banking. Um, There was a FDIC report on the collapse of Signature Bank, which blamed bad management, but it also said regulators just didn't have enough staff in New York. I mean, there's some pretty damaging bits of information in here. If you put aside the politics, the regulars don't have enough staff. They didn't act. So who are they being held accountable by unless it's Chair Powell?
7: Well, it it, it is Chair Powell. And I think think when the chairman goes to Congress, and remember, he testifies in front of both the House and the Senate a couple times a year, historically, all the questions have been on monetary policy. I think we're going to start seeing a lot more questions. On the, regulate, on the regulatory policy. How is regulation working? Are they keeping up to what they need to do? Do they have proper staff? Are there issues that are going by that are not being covered? This is a, a huge finding. I mean, this is a, a bit of a seismic moment because we believe in the United States, and I think the US population believes, that the banks where they deposit their hard-earned money are well-regulated. Right. And we have found out this week in the Fed's own report that these banks are not well-regulated, and, the, and they admitted it themselves. I ran a regulated bank. I know that if we would have ever told our regulator that we did not have a st- a, 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 enough people to regulate ourselves, they yeah. would have shut us down. Right. So we cannot well. be in a position where the regulators themselves say, we do not have enough staff to regulate you properly.
0: You ran one of the biggest banks. Uh, Gary, we got to leave it there. We'll be back in a moment. A search is underway in Texas for a gunman who allegedly killed five of his next-door neighbors, including an eight-year-old on Friday. Sheriff's deputies say the suspect entered the neighbor's house firing his AR-15 execution style after they asked him to stop firing the gun in his yard while their baby slept. Thursday, we spoke with some parents about the impact of gun violence on their children, and we began with a mother who says her biggest concern about raising her young daughter is her safety.
9: We never had things like lockdown drills or anything like that in school. Having her come home when she was even in kindergarten and first grade telling me about this is something that is a little bit concerning to me.
0: What was that conversation like? How did you talk to her about gun violence?
9: Well. Um, I live in a home where my husband does have firearms and we've learned to use them like respectfully. And there's a lot of rules and regulations around the safe use of guns. She didn't really seem very scared about it. She said that, you know, the teachers did a very good job of it. Um, what was concerning to me is just like at such a young age that they're learning that this could happen. I know, uh, Scott, you are in Ohio
0: and um Wayne, you are in Arkansas. I imagine um, you are familiar with guns yourselves in your communities.
10: Uh, yes, and and also uh, lockdown drills. Um, my wife is an early uh, childhood intervention specialist, and has been for decades. And uh, I've been a substitute teacher. Luckily, we have not had any shooters in those, but we've had to talk to our kids, and we've had to—they've uh, had to live through us. Notifying them that we were locked down in a school and them notifying us that they were locked down in schools.
0: Does that cause your children to worry?
10: They've seen us make it through it and they have understood what the lockdowns were about. Uh, Often they were um, uh, in my wife's neighborhood. uh, Somebody was shot a couple blocks away, but that's enough to lock down the school. I think they understand you know that there is a risk, but that risk is spread out across the united states and and even even with the awful amount that's happening, the chances of them happening at their very school on that day, um they have bigger worries.
0: Wayne, how much concern does gun violence cause uh, for your children, particularly in school?
11: With me being ex-military, I'm a veteran. they come to me telling me we want to learn. My biggest concern is I have an elementary school here that when everybody's inside, it turns into a prison. All the gates are locked, all the windows are locked. And I'm kind of concerned about that because if it gets past the front door, they can't get out.
0: Uh, Scott, uh, I know in your state, there was recently a law passed to make it easier for public school teachers to carry guns. Do you think that makes schools more secure?
10: No, I, I think that it does quite the opposite. Uh, again, um, a school shooter is not a common experience. You bring in uh, guns into classrooms, then you have millions of guns across the nation in classrooms five days a week. You have all sorts of opportunities to, to create a um, a gun disaster. Mm -hmm. and which you wouldn't have had before they did this.
0: Show of hands, do all of you believe that mental health is an issue right now and primarily to blame for the gun violence that we've been seeing? Raise your hand if you think that's true. All of you
9: think mental health. I do think it's a contributing factor though, especially when you see some of the school shootings with some of the younger individuals, yeah. I feel like we're not doing enough to stop it from happening.
0: Okay. So how many of you, show of hands, think uh, gun laws should be more strict in your state? Scott, you're the only one who wants your state of Ohio to have stricter gun laws. Okay. Um, How many of you think the federal government can do more to make life safer for kids when it comes to gun violence? Scott, again, you're the only one. Christine, why don't you think that the government can do more?
9: A lot of people think of um, restricting, causing more laws. And the truth of it is is that the criminals don't listen to the laws. If they did, they wouldn't be criminals.
0: And Wayne, when it comes to mental health, you also don't think there's something that the state or federal government could do as it relates to the link between mental health and gun violence?
11: I think the laws that are already on the books need a little bit more human involvement. We need to have more people that look at what who's picking up this gun and what they're going to do with
0: it. How many of you are optimistic about the country right now? Raise your hand if you're optimistic. Wayne and Scott, Christine?
9: No? I mean, the economy's not great. Some of the relationships with foreign countries are not as good as they used to be. I mean, it's just, yeah, I do think like drugs are a big deal to me. The bullying is a big deal. I don't know. I just, I do think there's a lot of issues.
11: I'm a born again Christian. I have a very tight understanding of what that means. I am seeing this country at this moment. Mm -hmm. In 10 years, it's going to be about the same. They're making it seem like there's something going on that's pulling our economy down. And if we keep thinking that, we will go down. If we change our mindset, if you can shake it off,
0: the sun comes up, you keep going. Scott, what are you optimistic about?
10: I'm. Um, it also is related to um, uh, my church experience. Um, I see a lot of people connecting uh, and still connecting. Uh, you know, I, you see on the media um, how everything is going down and uh, is just on the edge of falling off a cliff. I think we can pull together and move move ahead.
11: We've got to pull together because if we don't, we will go down. The, we will go down that rabbit hole.
0: I like I like your sentiment that we all need to pull together. I think that's a good note for us to end on today. We'll be right back. Russian forces fired dozens of missiles and drones in Ukraine, the heaviest barrage in weeks. Just as Kiev says, preparations are underway for a major spring counteroffensive. Our Charlie Daggett has the latest from Dniproh.
1: A fuel storage depot erupted into an inferno on the Russian-occupied peninsula of Crimea. Russia blamed a drone strike. A Ukrainian official would only call it God's punishment for the heaviest bombardment this country has seen in weeks. Almost two dozen civilians killed in the central city of Uman, including small children. We found residents digging out after a missile strike outside Dnipro that killed 31-year-old Olga and her two-year-old daughter, Veronica. Her uncle, Sergei, told us she was very funny, very clever. We had big hopes for her. There are no military targets here and it's nowhere near the front line, where trench warfare rages on, especially in and around the contested city of Bakhmut. A front line that might be about to expand dramatically as Ukraine's defense minister announced that the counteroffensive is about ready for launch. His words just waiting for God's will and the weather. NATO announcing that 98% of the promised combat vehicles have been delivered, among them 230 tanks. But there are serious concerns, part of those leaked intelligence documents, over Ukraine's rapidly dwindling air defense systems, a question we put to senior defense official Alexei Danilov. What can you tell us about that? I can tell you that we are constantly working on this issue, he said. We're in great need of aircraft. We need a new means of anti-air defense if we want to be successful in this war. Analysts say if Russian fighter jets and bombers are able to operate freely over the skies in Ukraine, it could drastically change the course of the war. It's impossible to overestimate the importance of air defense systems in safeguarding cities like here in Dnipro and the capital, Kiev, where defense officials say 11 missiles and two drones were intercepted in the latest wave of attacks. Margaret?
0: Charlie Dagata, thank you. The struggle for democracy and freedom of the press were the main focus of last night's annual White House Correspondents' Dinner in a Washington ballroom packed with journalists, politicians, and celebrities. The president did get some laughs as he made fun of his age and when he took some swipes at Republicans and conservative-leaning media outlets. But his tone was sober when he called for the release of wrongfully detained journalist Evan Gorskovich of The Wall Street Journal, currently imprisoned in Russia, and Austin Tice, who's been held in Syria for
3: 11 years. Journalism is not a crime. Evan and Austin should be released immediately, along with every other American held hostage or wrongfully detained abroad. Paul Whelan, unjustly held in Russia for more than four years, they are not forgotten. And I promise you, I am working like hell to get them home. My commitment is to bring them home, just as I know your commitment is to continue to be in a free and fearless press. And that's what we honor tonight. You make it possible for ordinary citizens to question authority. The free press is a pillar, maybe the pillar of a free society, not the enemy.
0: The president's remarks are usually the highlight of the event, but last night, there was one guest in attendance who stole the the show.
3: We'll never give up on hope. Things can get better. Things can turn. Things can change. Tonight, unlike last year, Brittany Griner's here with her wife, Cheryl. (laughs) Brittany, where are you, kid? Stand up, come on. I love this woman. It's great to have you home. And boys, I can hardly wait to see you back on the court, kids. Greiner is now
0: using her public platform to advocate for Americans who are wrongfully detained, including the family of Ahmad Shargi and others held for years in Iran. We'll be right back.
8: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
0: programming note our CBS News streaming daily political broadcast Red and Blue is going to get a new name and a new look. America Decides premieres tomorrow and airs starting Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern with second runs at 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. Eastern. As for us until next week for Face the Nation. I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were California Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna, South Carolina Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace, Texas Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez, and the vice chairman of IBM and former Trump economic advisor Gary Cohn. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+.
4: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey.
2: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News Business Analyst, Certified Financial Planner, and host of the Money Watch Podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life.